Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Professor Daniel Parsons is the Director of the Energy and Environment Institute at the University of Hull and is a Research Fellow in Sedimentology. Daniel leads over 120 people in tackling global issues surrounding climate change and its consequences on livelihood. Today we'll be talking about the bioeconomy in the northeast of England and the future of flooding for the UK. Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. Uh, Lord Prescott describes the work of the EEI, the Energy and Environment Institute, as enabling a low-carbon transition in energy production in order to meet the Paris Agreement. What does that work undertake? What does that work? Yeah, so so, um, approximately three years ago, we established an interdisciplinary institute at the University of Hull under my my leadership, and um, we we, we, we created this, this institute, this entity that reaches across all the traditional disciplines that you'd find at a university to bring, bring all those disciplines together to, to tackle um, the big challenges for, for, for the future of, of, uh, of, of, of society, really, on, on, on Earth. And, and, and we, we created the institute with, with uh, that in mind in terms of how we, how we can't decouple energy um uh, the production and the consumption of energy with the environment um that they're, they're intrinsically in link interlinked across the whole global economy um and and really tackling one without the other isn't 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 possible so 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 what what lord prescott um highlighted was was really um the the ethos of of the entire institute and indeed when when i started pulling pulling the institute together with its its strategic objectives um uh, John Lord Prescott was 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 absolutely fundamental in that process. In that that I went to him um, and he, he had a position at the university as a as a visiting visiting scholar um, and and I you know tested tested out the ideas and the, the strategic areas that the the institute would tackle um, as a as a, as an overall plan. So 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 yeah, we we really want to want to drive drive all of those um, sustainability challenges and, and and take all of the disciplinary expertise across campus and focus them on on the solutions that we need um, for a sustainable future. And a part of that net zero future involves some projects that you're doing at the moment with Evo Flood with the University of Southampton and you're in partnership with the Flood Innovation Centre. On post-flood recovery, yeah, the, the the example of the flood innovation centre really, um, uh, I think, attests to the broader role universities can play in in delivering a net zero future for the UK and beyond. Um, so when when we think of universities, we think of academic research, we think of the the undergraduate programmes that we that, that we teach and and, and educate um, future leaders of, of the future on. Um, but universities have a broader role than that in terms of knowledge exchange, um, being being anchor institutions in their region, um, interfacing with with key uh, local government, uh, uh, with with uh, key players in different regions. And, and and at the University of Hull, what we've really focused on is is um, exploring and trying to help the the small and medium sized enterprises across our region in 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 their net zero journeys and in their their resilience to 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 the the, the consequences that climate change will have. Um, the Humber has uh, some of the most vulnerable. 
um, communities to to flooding um, in, in in the UK, and and the flood innovation centre's objective is really to to harness the opportunity that really sits around that to make this region the most flood resilient region um, in the UK by by innovating both in terms of products and services, but also um, uh, interfacing with with key partners such as um, the Yorkshire Water, um, the, the the local authorities, as I said, um, and and broader partnership working with people like Arup and the Rockefeller Foundation, so that we can really learn how to live with water within this region. And the Flood Innovation Centre sits at the at the centre of that here here in Hull. Um, the the Evo Flood Program um, is a is a is a Natural Environment Research Council large grant. Um, that we're leading with uh, with with folks in Southampton, but it actually involves um, a whole range of other institutions across across the UK as well. Um, and what we're looking to do there is think globally um, and and look at how uh, flood hazard and flood risk will will change into the future across the globe. Um, and the key thing that Evo Flood is tackling, and, and most most geographers will know this, is, is that rivers aren't static pipes. They're not um, entities that don't change through time. And, and all of our flood models at the moment actually assume that these rivers are, stay the same. And it's just the, the hydrology that's changing, i.e. where the rainfall happens and how, how intense that rainfall is. And that's what controls floods. Um, and, and that's true to a degree, but we're ignoring the other half of the equation. And that's how, how what's the carrying capacity of our rivers? How much water can they hold and how much water can, can they convey downstream? And, it, and floods happen when, when that conveyance capacity is exceeded. Um, and so what Evo Flood's doing is, is looking at how that conveyance capacity changes and how, how that will evolve over time as rivers wiggle about or change their size and their shape in response to the changing amount of water that they're subjected to. Um, so that we can look at the interface there um, and look at how flood hazard will, will change into the future. The other thing that Evo Flood will do is, is, is account for the fact that, that people aren't static entities either. They move around. We build uh, and expand our cities in different ways. Um, and populations, whether distributed across the globe, will change into the future too. And at the moment, again, um, what we're trying to do in, in terms of thinking about how flood hazard transitions into flood risk, that is how people are exposed and are vulnerable to flood events, um, we have to account for how global populations will change into the future as well. So, so Evo floods really coupling together the physical and the human side of geography to understand our exposure to flooding as a global society into the future. And a part of the EEI strategy is to help make the university carbon neutral by 2027. Yeah, so this is this is something that we're we're incredibly proud of um, at the University of Hull, um, and and this this has been uh, adopted now into the the actual new vision for for the university of a, a fairer, brighter, carbon neutral world, and so it's in into the DNA of the the university um, as as we move forward. And um, twenty twenty seven is actually the the hundredth birthday of of the University of Hull as an institution, um, and we've set that as a a, a target to, to, to reach uh, carbon neutrality, which is incredibly ambitious, um, a little bit scary in some ways because because that, that ambition um, is, is, is really um, uh, a difficult target to hit. But, but we need as universities to be, be not just uh, you know, being the intellectual leaders of a, 
a, a carbon neutral world. We need to be um, we need to be action leaders as well, and we need to lead by example. So, so we've set a really, really ambitious target of 2027, and, and we have a, a an energy master plan. Um, we have all of the all of the the, the, the tools um, there there to, to achieve it, and it's a it's a great fusion actually of of all of the power of a of a broader university coming to bear. So that's the estates department, the the the, the catering team, the, the the academics, finance department. Um, all coming together with this strategic objective of of, um, of, of reaching net zero. So that's something yeah, we're, we're very proud about. Moving on to the title of today's podcast, can I ask in, in a really basic um, way, uh, what is the bioeconomy? Yeah, sure. So, 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 so the, the, the bioeconomy is, is a way of expressing the, the, the broader interactions we have with, with the ecosystem services of, of, of landscapes, if you like. So, so how we take value um, with, from and give value to or how we value ourselves, the, the, the landscape itself. And, and, and there's obviously work that's gone on in this area of trying to, um, you know, phrases such as natural capital or ecosystem services um, and it's trying to bring all of those things together to think of of all of the interactions that that, that exist across across this bio e- 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 economic um, uh, space I, I can give you I can give you one neat example that kind of exemplifies this um, and how how those, how, how those how those interactions work so so um if you imagine um, a, a farming landscape maybe in in uh, somewhere in Yorkshire and, and on that landscape, the, the farmers um, currently produce a winter wheat crop. And that winter wheat is generally um, low, low quality um, wheat that's used for animal feed. Um, so it has a value to the farmer. Um, it's it, it's it, 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 you know they sell that 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 uh, sell or use that that product, um, but um, what we can what we can do in, in instead of growing that winter wheat, for example, would be to grow a, a cover crop that, that that isn't that isn't harvested. Um, that has high high uh, uh, value in terms of um, in terms of looking after the soil um, during during uh, the rainfall periods of the of the winter. So there's an advantage there in retaining soil on on the field. Um, we can plough that that uh, cover crop in to the field at, at the end of winter as we transition into spring. Um, and what that can do is increase the the organic carbon content of the of of, of the soil of, of, of the field um, and that's really important because what that does is 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 essentially increase the amount of water that 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 soil can hold the organic carbon content how much organic carbons in the soil is is closely related to how much water the field can, can absorb uh, you, you're making it more of a sponge if you like um, and that has a whole range of benefits in terms of reducing flood flood hazard and risk downstream, um, improving um, the the water quality that comes off of off of that field in terms of uh, in, in terms of the runoff, um, and, and all of those things have have uh, benefits in terms of uh, water authorities um, treating water, um, the costs of those, uh, and the, not just the financial cost but the carbon cost of treating water. Um, we have to pump less water around as a result of less water 
um, leaving leaving that 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 particular field and landscape. So so you know we we use less uh, energy and less carbon in terms of our pumping stations. Um, we also um, get benefits from from periods of perhaps drought periods during during the the, the following summers where where the water content of the the soil is starting from a higher higher position. So we build resilience into our agricultural system. But as a farmer, you've lost that winter wheat crop and the value that that had. So there's a big bioeconomy related in here in that we need to find ways and innovative ways to compensate the farmer um, for the lack of a winter wheat crop, but find ways to take the value that we've ascribed elsewhere from the, the water authorities, from, from not needing to do as much with, with, um, with, with pumping water around perhaps, um, with, with, with a range of other benefits that, that come from not the farmer not uh, growing a winter wheat crop. So, so the bioeconomy is intricately linked together in these big kind of interacting uh, uh, spheres. And, and, and what we're trying to do is really understand those, those drivers and dynamics. And, and, and doing that right now is really important for a range of reasons. Obviously, the, the, the onset of, of, of a changing climate and trying to build some resiliency into those systems but, but uniquely, Brexit, and I'm afraid to say that word at times, um, uh, Brexit provides the opportunity for us to tackle some of the economic drivers here as well. Um, people will have heard of something called the, the common agricultural policy um, as we transition in, uh, in, into a, a post-Brexit world. There's the opportunity to change the economic drivers within um, the replacement for the common agricultural policy that makes makes the decisions that you know, drives the right decisions for the right reasons in terms of how we manage our broader landscapes. You've mentioned there the importance of uh, improving organic carbon content, and um, you've used the example of removing the winter wheat um, crop. Uh, from a particular field in, in Yorkshire. Um, there are other dynamics in the bioeconomy as well, aren't there? The European Commission also says that, that you need to ensure food security, uh, manage natural resources sustainably long term and, and create jobs. And I wonder, are, are there any other dynamics that are a part of this um, this industry and this field? Yeah, ab absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a massive complex web. And, you know, the, the example I, I've, I've just given you kind of look is at the interface between food and water, really, um, and how we manage our landscapes to optimise those those two entities. Um, but you're right that, that there are all sorts of other uh, linkages. Um, uh, and another great example is is the interface between between the, the food production and and, 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 uh, and, and agriculture and, and energy. Um, so some of the other work that we're doing within this this uh, uh, bioeconomy uh, uh, project that we're we're leading on with York and, and Teesside universities is is looking at fusing together um, management of landscapes um, waste so, so, so waste products from that from from the bioeconomy and how we how we use that waste to generate energy um, we, which is obviously um, a, a low carbon alternative um, in terms of how we how we generate energy so there's there's byproducts from pea growing for example that we can use to to, to generate energy from and, and replace um, perhaps burning natural gas and, and old carbon with new modern carbon instead and, and so so yeah there's all sorts of interlinkages between this you know the water food energy nexus if you like that all interplay and overlap um, in this thing called the bioeconomy. 
The Biowaste Nexus is really interesting. Um, the University of Hull is partnering with the University of York and Teesside, as I understand it, to explore how to transform biowaste into high-value products. Can you um, explain what you're researching and what products actually come from, from biowaste? Yeah, okay. Yeah, it, it is. It's a fascinating area because there's there's all sorts of, again, uh, linkages here. I, I'll give you one great example. It's one of my favorites. So, and the great thing about the TIME program, so so that's the yeah, Teesside York um, and Hull um, in, in, in the name. I think the follow-up might be coriander or something. I'm not sure. But um, but yeah, this program, it, 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 it's Fantastic, because it, it does exactly the sorts of things that I, I was talking about. I was talking about at the start, where where we bring together um, all of the different disciplines to really tackle some of these things. So, so one one example of a, a joint um, project, and there's lots of mini projects in in this overall program. And but one of my favourites is is one where we're looking at. Um, creating tree guards. Um, so these are the little plastic things that, that typically get put around juvenile trees when they're planted in, in, in uh, across um, in, in plantation areas. Um, and of course, those things sit there and, and degrade into the landscape and people, you know, you know, responsible people go out and collect them once the trees are established. But there's always the opportunity that they leak into into the, the environment. And we all know that the sorts of impacts that plastics can have in, in our broader environment. Um, so we're actually taking some bio waste some lignins um, that, that, that are produced from from bio waste. And, and working with with partners in in, in industry and also in um, in chemical engineering to manufacture new tree guards they're actually made of of, of bio wastes and they they're, they're actually able to to uh, imprint into these new tree guards that, that, that are biodegradable actually um, some some nutrients so that as they as they degrade into the soil as the tree grows we're actually able to take take uh, the benefit of, of that degradation and actually um, provide nutrients to the trees uh, as, as the guards are no longer needed. And, uh, and the, the interesting thing, of course, going back to the economy is, is they're a little bit more expensive um, to, than the, the old plastic um, uh, tree guards, but nobody needs to go out and collect them and we get take the benefit of not not putting plastic into into the environment as well. So, so that's a real... I think neat example of 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 some of the work and and it's taking the expertise and the great thing about this is is it's really connecting capability between between the different partner universities um so you know the the strengths in in chemical engineering and and, and geography and the circular economy at hull with 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 some of the uh, the, the the bio uh, the uh, Biorenewables Development Centre in, in 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 York, and and really bringing together all of that 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 capacity and capability, um, to, to to address these big problems. The university partnership you've just alluded to with um, with the acronym Time um, is described as. Uh, basically trying to benefit from uh, the fast-growing bioeconomy in the north of England, which has world-class bioeconomic assets. And um, what are those assets for the northeast? Yeah, so, so, so we, we've, we've, uh, there, there was uh, a, a range of uh, work done a, a number of years ago, and it was, it was under the old um, industrial strategy as well as of the, the previous uh, administration that really looked to, um, to a, a sector and placed 
based approach to 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 economic development across the UK. Um, it's it's largely still there. Um, it's it's now called Leveling Up uh, with the current administration. But there's there, there are a range of strengths of of place um, and sector across the UK, and and the bioeconomy has has a range of. Of strengths uh, uh, across across this this region, um, you know, in this this area between between Teesside, uh, York, and ourselves in Hull, we have some of the most productive agricultural landscapes in in the UK in this region. Um, there's there's a, a high percentage of the uh, of the 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 economy is is driven by by agriculture um, in 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 this region, and there's a whole range of of assets, as you say, from from um, both in terms of the the capabilities that we have within within the partner institutions, but then also um, industry as well. There's there's a range of um, uh, uh, production sites in terms of using biological products um, uh, in, in in innovative ways, and there's a there's a capacity there. So so when we talk about assets, sometimes people think think buildings or or um, you know infrastructure, but but lots of the assets we have are also the people and the skills and the services as well. And 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 uh, and the the reason that time uh, program was was funded by Research England, I believe, is, is is really how we how we're trying to connect together the skills and the talent with that with 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 the the broader asset base of of, of the region to to drive. Those connections I've just mentioned, you know, between between the universities, between the private sector um, in this region to really grow the, the, the bioeconomy to its to its full potential. Returning to flooding, which we started with in this podcast um, and looking back to February 2020, Coastal Flooding and Risk Management Executive Director John Curtin said there were a record of 594 flood warnings and alerts in force at that time more than any other day on record. Um, can I ask you a really simple question? Is flooding getting worse? Is it, as people suggest, more erratic and more extreme? Uh, the, the simple answer is yes. Um, so some of the some of the work we're now able to do um, with where we're, we're able to, um, to statistically um, outline um, which which flood events that we or broader flood kind of uh, periods that we receive um, statistically how much more likely they would be um, than than with a static climate um, so, so we're able to pull pull that out it's called it's called attribution studies and 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 those are now clearly demonstrating that that a warming climate is is resulting in this increase in in flood in flood hazard um and the yeah the example of last last uh, uh last year um last february um it you know kind of kind of sticks in in the mind of those areas um up, up very close to us here here in humberside um in you know the village of snaith for example that was absolutely devastated just as the onset of the pandemic was hitting as well and, and those communities were were severely severely impacted by but by those by those flood events, so 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 yes. In answer to your question, um, we we can we can say now that the the climate has changed to to such a degree that across northwest Europe, that the, the the likelihood of these events are increasing and will continue to do so. Certainly, in terms of the the, the near future, is the solution re digging the the trenches and. Uh 
and keeping on top of the culverts. Um, flooding costs the UK 2.2 billion per annum, and 800 million is spent on defence every year against rising floodwaters. Um, or are there other ways that we could approach this? Yeah, so, so there's. You're right. It's it's, it's expensive business, and 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 uh, the the numbers you've just just used there just just show how how much how much investment in 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 flood flood risk management. I, I was trying to steer away from the word flood defence because defending from flooding is 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 incredibly difficult. What 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 we want to do is really better manage the risk of, of flooding. Um, and, and in some places that will be um, building walls higher. Um, so, um, you know, the, the Humber frontages, the whole, the whole frontages uh, work that's just completed this past week has, has, has um, built a, a, a flood wall all the way along the, 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 the frontage of, of Hull onto the, onto the Humber. And, and that's been made future proof that it could be lifted higher again into the future as, as we anticipate, um, you know, a, a meter plus of sea level rise by the, by the end of the century. Um, so, so in some places, absolutely building, building up our, our, our um, flood defenses is the right thing to do. Um, but but in other places, um, actually managing the risk in other ways will be will be the solution. Uh, and there's there's all sorts of work going on in terms of managing floods more um, in in a more natural way. Um, how we can slow down water um, fluxing through our catchments so that we we're we're, um, we're doing more on that score. So the example I spoke spoke about earlier, where we we're increasing the organic carbon content of our of our agricultural landscapes can play a very significant role in that for example um, and then in other places we, we're going to need to learn how to how to live with water more effectively learn how to be flooded um, there are some places where where flood protecting fully from flooding is not going to be possible um, but there are plenty of places around the world where where, where people adapt um, to 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 flooding um, happening every year there's there's monsoonal regions of the of, of Southeast Asia where, where where myself and colleagues have done lots of work and and each and every year the floodwaters come and and people live with being flooded um, during those periods of time and and I think we need to maybe think a little bit more creatively about how we design our homes how we how we make our homes flood resilience um, uh, into the future as well. So, so, so it'll be a, uh, I think uh, you, you mentioned John Curtin's name, name earlier, um, his, his mosaic approach to flood risk management is absolutely the right way to, 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 to approach our, our future with, with living with water. Can I now jump to our final question? If an A-level geography student is listening to this now and is interested in a career in either the bioeconomy or, or flooding, what subjects would you encourage him or her to consider for higher education? What degree choices should um, a young budding geographer or scientist head towards? Yeah, no, uh, the, the, there's, the, there's a range of opportunities for you. Now, the, the, the reason uh, I, I fell in love with with geography as a, as a as a discipline area is is that it, it it's the it's the magpie of, of disciplines. I always think of it. It's it's taking all the best bits from all the other 
or all the other kind of areas. Um, so, you know, some, some geographers, uh, you know, uh, are essentially uh, chemists um, or physicists or, or, um, or mathematicians, some, some um, branch into, into politics. And we take all the best bits of all of the other disciplines and bring them together into this interdisciplinary space. And I think it's absolutely right to say that, that geography is, it just bring, brings space and time to every other discipline. Um, and, and, and as a result of that, we're, we're also the, 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 the most interdisciplinary of subjects as a result. And, and, and of course, when we're thinking about big global challenges that we've been talking about today, you know, how are we going to have a, a sustainable uh, energy production in the future? How are we going to produce produce the, the, the right amount of food in the right places at the right time? Um, how are we going to manage water and flood and, 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 and these, the, these interrelated areas into the future? Needs an interdisciplinary approach and, and geographers are at the absolute centre of, of that um, because, because time and space matters across all of those things. So, so yeah, in, in terms of a, a, a geography student and, and, and my advice right now, um, it, it, it's the world, the world's your oyster in so many ways. It really is, um, because because your your skills as 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 a geographer with a with a background in geography are absolutely going to be needed into the future. And whether you choose to do geography as an undergraduate degree program, or you're going to do something in and around a, a related discipline, that connectivity back to time and place will always be there for you. Dan, thank you very much for joining us today. That's great. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.geographer.com rgs.org slash schools.